0: Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Sebastian and I'm here with Jennifer hello and we are doing another just the two of us podcast
1: just the two of us
0: we are doing our October Halloween movie coverage month with all spooky films before we get back to the more typical tentpole traumas And this episode we're going to be discussing in the mouth of madness the John Carpenter film from 1994. Now, before we get into the film itself, I would like to just touch a little bit upon late period John Carpenter. We have covered the thing for this podcast. We also plan on possibly talking about some more John Carpenter for the upcoming Patreon podcast. But we haven't really talked much about sort of his later period, say, post The Thing. What are some of the John Carpenter movies from the later period that you enjoy?
1: Prince of Darkness. I like Big Trouble in Little China. And we also have covered that on this podcast. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy They Live. And it kind of became true. Kind of. (laughs) John Carpenter is is like that in that way where he was seeing things uh, more clearly than most and um, Putting that into his work.
0: I enjoy Obviously Big Trouble in Little China. We talked about I do like Christine a lot and of course
1: Christine Yes,
0: I'm not too big on Starman. That's not one that I really like that much
1: I remember seeing that a lot on TV uh, that I must have been on HBO a lot at the time and I, I I, did kind of like it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I liked it when I would see it on cable or whatever. But I've watched it since then and it's not terribly exciting to me anymore.
1: I haven't tried to revisit it since since then, so that, that would be something to do.
0: I do like uh, Prince of Darkness. We saw that one in A Creepy Church with Troy.
1: Well, the creepy church.
0: That's right, the creepy <laughs> church in it's the movie. the
1: creepy church, not just a creepy church, the creepy church.
0: Yeah, that movie's weird. I do like it, but it is kind of a tough nut to crack in terms of... I don't really understand fully what's going on and sometimes it's kind of boring but then there are some parts that are really good overall I like it but I wouldn't say it's a go-to
1: overall I like it as well but it's not like yeah it's not one of my favorites and I was reading this that Prince of Darkness the thing and then this film that we're talking about in the mouth of madness are kind of his apocalyptic trilogy
0: yeah I think he calls it the apocalypse trilogy yes well that makes sense yeah And then after this film, you have Village of the Damned, which I think is pretty terrible.
1: I like Village of the Damned. I actually, I saw Village of the Damned in the theater. And I I think I was sharing, I also saw The Ward in the theater.
0: I did not see Village of the Damned or The Ward in the theater. I might have seen Ghosts of Mars in the theater, although I think I saw it on video That's a pretty dumb movie, but it has some moments. It has a little bit of an Escape from New York vibe with Ice Cube. That's kind of okay, but for the most part, it's pretty bad. Vampires is pretty bad. What I'm getting at here is that I think In the Mouth of Madness might be the last kind of good John Carpenter movie. The last movie that he's made that I think you can argue is pretty decent from start to finish I
1: I think that's an accurate assessment
0: now one of the reasons why that might be is because this is such a clear and obvious tribute to the iconic horror writer H.P. Lovecraft I'd say that this may be the best Lovecraftian film ever made there's some debate now because um richard stanley did like in the color of space Mm -hmm. recently which was pretty good that a lot of people like there's Stuart gordon obviously did Mm reanimator which is technically lovecraft but it doesn't really feel like it so much
1: i feel like this is the most lovecraftian film
0: which is ironic since it's not technically based on any sort of Lovecraft text.
1: No, but it feels like it. It
0: was written by Michael De who is better known as a producer. He's produced a lot of pretty important movies over the years.
1: Super important movies over the years, like things that are kind of a big deal, and things that I really enjoy. So, and and I think he got his start pretty young. Yeah, at, at New Line. Yeah, I would just he was just prolific in his his projects. But yeah,
0: he wrote this in the 80s and it went through a bunch of hands. I think at some point it was supposed to be directed by Tony Randall, mm-hmm. not Tony Randall the comedian, but Mm-mm. Tony Randall the director of Hellraiser 2. Yes. I think Mary Heron might have been involved at one point, but you know, it just kept getting passed through different hands. John Carpenter was approached originally to direct this by Michael DeLuca himself, and John Carpenter passed. But, you know, I don't know, somehow 1993 or so rolled around and John Carpenter changed his mind, probably because he hadn't had much of a hit in a long time and was thinking that he should maybe go back to the horror well. Well, let's just get into the movie. Uh, The movie... Stars, uh, Sam Neill in the lead role. This is post Jurassic Park, and I think post The Piano too, or at least the same year as The Piano. So it's kind of interesting that Sam Neill would do a arguably schlocky horror film. Around the same time when he's kind of hitting the A-list with Jurassic Park in the piano.
1: Possibly, but I think he, this is just a type of character that he enjoys playing. And I, I think he's really good at playing. I mean, it's very similar to... Especially towards the end, to um, possession.
0: In fact, um, Josh Miller and I, for Friday Night Frights a few years back, programmed the Sam Neill Madness trilogy, and I believe we did Possession, which was one of our first dates. (laughs) We wanted a date to see Possession. Which, if you haven't seen it, you really owe yourself the opportunity to see it.
1: And you should see it on a first date because you might end up married.
0: That's right. It's a movie that really brings couples together.
1: Choose wisely.
0: It's ironic as the movie's all about the disintegration of a relationship <laughs> and turning it into a literal horror movie. Yep. But it's an amazing film by the Polish director Zulowski and you should totally see it. We also showed this movie mm-hmm. and we showed, I believe, Event Horizon.
1: That sounds right. Because
0: he goes crazy in that. And in fact, I rewatched Event Horizon a few days ago. Yeah, I
1: was going to say just recently you were watching that.
0: Well, I wanted to sort of re-prep myself for Sam Neill madness. Mm -hmm. Because at the end, he even kind of like sort of looks similar to the way he looks at the end of this movie or in the beginning of this movie when he's got all his crosses Mm -hmm. painted on him and everything. So yeah, I mean, to your point, I think Sam Neill... Kind of likes the horror genre. I don't know for sure if he does or if he doesn't, but he's also in um, The Final Conflict, Omen 3. That's right. He's Damien Thorne yeah. as an adult. So he's no stranger to it. He
1: just likes these type of roles. It doesn't matter where he is stature-wise as you know, as far as being an A-lister at the time or whatever. It's like if this seems like a, a, a fun role to him, I, it, and this is only based on from what he's chosen in the past. I mean, he just seems to really get into it yeah I think I mean I think it's fun to play crazy it definitely (laughs) must be fun to play crazy
0: and he seems like he's having a good time doing it for sure yeah let's talk a little bit about the framing story we get a framing story in which the Sam Neill character John Trent who we will find out is an insurance investigator is brought into an insane asylum It's a very well art designed sort of insane asylum. The main doctor there is played by the great John Glover, who I love. He's just got this long face and he's just got such a great sort of delivery, great character actor. And we also get another psychologist who's coming in to interview Sam Neill, played by R.I.P. David Warner. Yes who has recently passed. We don't get a lot of these guys. They're really just in this framing story, which is a little too bad because I like both of them, but Absolutely. they're great actors to have in these small roles. This guy that Sam Neill is playing has clearly lost his mind. We get the idea that there's something kind of going on in the outside world, but we don't see it really. And we're hearing mention of this author, Sutter Kane, whose books are driving people uh, crazy. Yeah,
1: I I love this setup and really happy to see both of these actors, especially David Warner. Of course, I would have loved to spend more time with them, but it just it works the way it does with the story. Because there's, you know, this is just where our lead character is going to end up. And we need to figure out how he got there.
0: It's one of those sort of classic framing yes sort of stories where it's like how did he get this way and he's gonna tell us as he's being interviewed by the david warner character kind of a little bit like interview with the vampire which also came out this year i think that was just kind of in the air it's a real theme or maybe they just straight up decided to rip off interview with the vampire with this framing story the formula works it's a good formula it's a
1: good formula as you mentioned Sam Neill is uh, John Trent. Yeah, it's two first names. And a lot of times it's referred to as Trent in the in the film by his last name. Yeah, he's definitely, a, you know, acting uh, way out of sorts and keeps, you know, saying things to David Warner, like, you know, it's getting really bad out there, isn't it? And, you know, it's, it's crazy, you know, it's crazy out there. And David Warner isn't Co-signing that but you can kind of tell by his face. I mean, he's definitely intrigued. That's why he's here Yes, you can tell something is going really wrong in the outside world And so he's like well, I'm willing to listen to John Trent, but I also kind of think John Trent is crazy, too
0: we also sort of get these flashes of things that we're going to see later on like You know, just little bits and pieces of scenes that are going to play out, uh, images that we're going to see in these scenes that are sort of unsettling or downright scary, like sort of monster faces or whatever, flashing lights and all that. As I said, Sam Neill has sort of painted himself with crucifixes and the whole inside of his like room is all crucifixes and everything.
1: Well, that was his one request was to have one black crayon. Right, and when David Warner comes in, he's like, "I'm here to try to get you out of here." And Sam Neill's like, "After I just redecorated, yeah. why would I want to leave?" And, and then he's like, "There's a lot of a couple jokes about when uh, Sam Neill comes in and he's fighting the orderlies and." He like kicks one in the balls, yeah. and so there's a couple jokes about that. He's you know he yells at the orderly, "Sorry about the balls. It was it was just like pure luck."
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, humor in oh, this yeah. movie. We should mention because John Carpenter is sort of famous for doing his own soundtracks. I don't know if he does the whole score for this. However, the opening theme, the music that we get over the credits. I noticed, especially this time, that it sort of starts off very much like Metallica's Enter Sandman. And I read that he wanted to just use Enter Sandman for the opening credits, but he couldn't get it. So he made up his own version with him, another guy, and Dave Davies of the Kinks. Cool. I think he might be playing the lead guitar or something. I don't know for sure, but it's just a strange combination.
1: It is, but it works because I really, I really love that music. And there's some good shredding there.
0: Yeah, there's some good shredding. Yeah, but
1: it's really like that driving, doom, 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 you know, like... Heavy, you know, drums and, and like how Enter Sandman begins, but it's not Enter Sandman. Yeah. <laughs> but now I can't unhear it.
0: I mean, if you think about it, Enter Sandman would make sense absolutely thematically with the movie. Yes. I can see what he was thinking.
1: Absolutely. But I mean, I'm kind of glad he didn't get to use it because I, I like what he came up with.
0: It would have maybe have been too on the nose.
1: Right. And it's always like... Something that I know we both really enjoy about John Carpenter films is is the music that he adds to it because he's a really talented musician Well,
0: let's get into the sort of the main story We meet uh, John Trent in his normal non insane (laughs) life As an insurance investigator. He investigates insurance scams and he's a very clever Sarcastic kind of guy as we've even seen in the intro And we get this little scene, very much like the opening of Chinatown. And I think it's probably the riff they're playing here, so to speak, is where he's, you know, interviewing this guy who's trying to claim his warehouse burned down. Mm -hmm. I forget the name of the actor, but he's an actor that shows up in a lot of Carpenter stuff.
1: Yeah, he's got I think he's got like two first names. Also, it's like something Jason. It's Peter Jason.
0: He always reminds me a little bit of Meatloaf.
1: He totally looks like Meatloaf. Like, they could be, like, brothers.
0: It's just a bit part, and, you know, it's just to show us how clever John Trent is, is getting him to admit that he's basically pulling a fraud. We see how good he is at his job. Well,
1: and he, you know, has to stick it to Peter Jason by saying, like, you know, if you're going to be in cahoots with your wife, like, don't let her find out about your mistress because... You you know, the wife is wearing like fur coats that were supposed to burn up in the warehouse. And and then the photographs are also of the mistress wearing these fur coats too. And once John Trent had done his investigation and ratted him out, the wife sung like a canary. We also get introduced to Bernie Casey here. That's right. Because he's the one that has hired uh, Sam Neill to do this investigation.
0: Another thing that we're seeing kind of creep in here is just how everybody's got a story and stories dictating reality and eventually we're going to get to this place where it's like the story is the reality and all of that so I think that's what they're going for here thematically Mm -hmm. so I think it's a kind of smart idea to have this guy that Sam Neill's playing this insurance investigator as our main character because he debunks people's fake stories.
1: Well, yeah, it's like the same thing as, as having, you know, a non-believer of uh, the paranormal. Somebody who doesn't believe. It's a reoccurring theme. It happens on a lot of things, but I think it's it's well used here because that's primarily what this insurance person is supposed to do. He's supposed to bust people that are fraudulent. I mean, I think by nature, when you work in that business, you're going to be suspect of everyone and everything, but you just can't help it.
0: So, the next assignment he gets from Bernie Casey is to figure out what has happened to Sutter Kane. Sutter Kane is a horror writer who is even bigger than Stephen King. His books have been read by over a billion people, and he's got this new book coming out in the mouth of madness. And the publisher supposedly is all freaked out because he's disappeared and they don't have the book. While Bernie Casey and Sam Neill are having this conversation in a diner, we see this man wandering towards the window of the diner. It's a big plate glass window and he's got an axe and as they're talking they don't notice him but the guy smashes through the window. With the axe and then he jumps up on the table and was like, do you read Sutter Mm -hmm. Kane?" And his eyeballs have like double pupils Mm -hmm. in them, kind of like the Mummy remake, which we talked about. That's right. And then he's shot and killed. But this is sort of the first indication that like people who are touched by Sutter Kane are crazy.
1: I love this scene. I I think it's really great, especially, you know, when, when you're seeing it for the first time. You you don't see this coming.
0: It's a very memorable scene. Yeah. It's funny. There's a similar scene in Spider-Man 2, which I think might have kind of cribbed from this scene where Peter and MJ are in a diner just like this talking and you see Doc Ock in the window throwing <laughs> a car through the window at them. It's a cool scene, but it's very similar just in the way it's staged and everything. It looks just like this scene. So I wonder if Sam... Uh, Ramey saw this movie and was like mm, I'm gonna take that
1: you should take it it's good
0: then we go and actually meet with the publisher mm-hmm. and the publisher is played by the great Charlton Heston that's right another pretty big name for a really small role I mean I think he only really gets two scenes here the idea is that Charlton Heston wants Sam Neill to go and try to find Sutter Kane and get him this manuscript that he's owed and Sam Neill isn't really buying any of this.
1: No, he thinks this is all a huge publicity stunt. He's like, oh, really? Your author went missing? Yeah. He's like, oh, okay. He's not buying it at all. And especially once we're introduced to Sutter Kane's editor, who comes in while he's talking to the publisher, Charlton Heston. And the editor is played by Julia Carmen,
0: And her character's name is Styles, mm-hmm. And she's going to sort of be... The female lead going forward in this movie. It's funny because they kind of position her that she might be a romantic foil for Sam Neill, but it never goes there, mostly because of Sam Neill's character not being into it, it seems.
1: Well, and it's funny because at first, like when they first meet and, you know, she's very hyped on Sutter Kane, obviously, because she edits his books and you know, Sam Neill's just kind of being very dismissive. It's calling it schlock and, and all of that. And she's like, he's bigger than Stephen King. And they, when they are walking out of the building together and they're like waiting for the elevator, he's like, well, maybe we should get together and, you know, strategize or whatever. And she's like, no, for a minute. He seems to be interested. Yeah. But I mean, it's also where things go. When romantic advances do come up later, it's it's in a really weird way.
0: Yeah. I think maybe uh, John Trent just isn't into weird hookups. Yeah.
1: <laughs> he wants things
0: to be on the level. I
1: be on the level. But
0: before we go on this adventure, so to speak, mm-hmm. we get a couple of scenes where... He goes to the bookstore to pick up some Sutter Kane books to do research. And I just have to say that um, when we did our In the Mouth Mm -hmm. of Madness screening, unfortunately, John Carpenter would not come out and (laughs) be a guest because he was too busy watching basketball or something. However, his lovely wife, Sandy King, came out and she was really nice. And she brought us Sutter Kane books. So when you see the movie, you see like, you know, standees full of paperbacks. And um, we actually have a couple of the actual prop books that were used in those scenes. And they are signed by John Carpenter to us. And Sandy. And Sandy. He did not come, but he gave us autographed Sutter Kane books. I'm sad to say that these aren't real books. <laughs> There's not a whole book in here. It is just one page of text copied over and over and i think you actually see the page of text that's in this book at the end of the movie when spoiler sutter kane like turns into a book page and it like splits open the text that you see on that page is actually in these books but it's really cool these are prized possessions of ours and uh thank you again sandy king for these awesome props
1: sandy king is just the coolest and I had the pleasure of of hanging out with her some you know during the screening and she's the producer of this as she's worked on many things with with her husband and she's just a total badass and just a, a really cool lady and even nicer they're signed to us by John Carpenter and Sandy She mailed these to us.
0: Oh, that's right.
1: Yeah, because I I think for some reason we didn't get them at the screening or whatever, and she had them signed and we, we got them mailed to us, which was really like super cool. But yeah, these are ultimate prize possessions forever. Yes,
0: we have the Hobbs End Horror, which is, you know, prominently featured in the film. And we also
1: have... The Thing in the Basement. That's right. And these book covers which are really cool and, and you know featured prominently in the film um really have that that 80s paperback type look to it big um, time and they featured prominently because this is how um John Trent Sam Neill discovers where Sutter Kane has gone That's to right. Hobbs End is because he has all these books and he's reading the books at home and they're starting to get into his head. He's starting to have nightmares and it's freaking him out. But he's like literally got like six books on the table and he's just all of a sudden because he is somebody who just put shit together. I, I believe it. I don't, I don't doubt for a second that he was able to crack this code, but he's looking at the books and all the books have like this kind of red, it looks like cracking sort of on them. And he just pulls off all the covers and takes some scissors and starts cutting and they like are now puzzle pieces, which he puts together and it's New Hampshire.
0: The place where Sutter Kane has disappeared to is a fictional town in New Hampshire That's called right. Hobbs End. In the movie itself, it's fictional. It's not just something made up for the movie. It's a, a town that doesn't exist because he brings this to the publisher, and they're like, well, great, there's no town in New Hampshire called Hobbs End, but he Sam Neill thinks he's figured out where it is on the map, and so that's where they're going to go. And so they go on the longest <laughs> drive to New Hampshire from New York City that you can possibly imagine.
1: I mean, I'm only letting this slide because I did – ask you, as a New Englander, as someone who was born and raised in New England, born in New York, actually, I'm like, how long does it take to drive? And and you said about four to five hours. Well,
0: actually, thinking about it, it would be more like six because, okay. you know, New Hampshire is a long state and takes about four hours to get to Massachusetts. So New Hampshire is past Massachusetts. So let's say six hours.
1: OK, but it seems like they're in the car For a really long time. And
0: not only that, they're driving through areas that are clearly not New Hampshire because at one point they're driving past (laughs) cornfields and stuff. There may be some corn somewhere in New Hampshire, but I don't remember seeing like flat (laughs) Iowa-style cornfields anywhere.
1: It didn't. I mean, I haven't spent a whole lot of time in New Hampshire, but enough to know where I was like, do they have corn like that there? And then when they finally do arrive to the destination then i was like okay this looks like new hampshire it's very quaint and cute and you know looks more colonial but the trip there wasn't so sure about it but i, I i'm letting all that slide because of the trippiness that's coming ahead like and because this location doesn't really Exist in reality, sure, yeah. So it's 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 fine.
0: We're just pointing this stuff out <laughs> for fun. We yeah. don't really care when movies do this. The movie's supposed to take place in New York, and it's not New York. It's like Toronto, and most of this was shot in Canada and Ontario and stuff like that. So who cares? Who we don't cares? really care.
1: No, we don't care. But it was just. I think I was just also just like, man, I was feeling the pain and the tiredness of this road trip because they like leave. It doesn't seem like it's that late in the day and then they literally are driving all night and it's like pitch black and I mean, this is when shit starts to get weird but it, it just, I was very tired.
0: So the Julia Carmen character, her name is Linda Stiles but everybody calls her Stiles and she is actually driving the car when things start getting really trippy. Sam Neill sort of passes out. She sees this strange person on a bicycle
1: the first time she sees him it's a, a young boy right yeah and then he passes by again and it's this old man with like shoulder length white hair but you know supposed to be the the same kid that you've seen already because it's the same bike he's got like that thing that kids did back in the day where the they put the card, card. playing cards so it makes the noise so yeah she passes this person on the bike a couple of times and is starting to get freaked out. And then um, she runs him over.
0: And when she runs him over, she talks to him and he talks in the little boy's voice so we know he's the little boy
1: right and he's like i can't get out of here no he says they won't let me leave yeah sam neil's like blissfully slumbering away and then he's like what happened oh he hit someone and he goes over to you know get some maybe a first aid kit from the car or something and she's with him at the old man now with the young boy's voice and then he just like hops up on his bike and pedals away. Yeah. And and Sam Neal's like, I guess he's okay then. Let's get back in the car. Like it's you know it's no big deal because he's not experiencing everything that that she is. And then we cut to her driving through this covered bridge.
0: Well, first she looks out the car window and she's like, they seem to be flying through oh, like right. storm clouds, <laughs> like right. literally flying over. <laughs> yeah clouds that are storming lightning and stuff and she's all freaked out then it seems to be in this weird tunnel and then the tunnel turns into this covered bridge right and then they come into the town and it's like broad daylight right where we've gone from like pitch black to broad daylight and that's when Sam Neal wakes up and he's all kind of refreshed and he's like yeah. oh I must have slept through the night here we are Styles has read the book mm-hmm. in the mouth of madness because she's the editor that's she's right. already read it Or most of it anyway. Mm -hmm. So the stuff that we're seeing is stuff that she's read about. So like everything that sort of happens from here on in, she knows because she's read it. Yeah. And so that's kind of like what her character is doing. They go to this hotel to get a room and you know we get the old lady from David Lynch movies shows up and she's and being Adam weird. Sandler
1: movies I think too <laughs> well, I'm sure she has a
0: very storied career as a weird old lady there's those paintings on the wall that have like this couple in it we're gonna see this painting transform throughout the movie at one point the faces get all kind of mutated and then later we actually see like Lovecraftian Mm -hmm. monsters on them and everything. So, you know, it's all weird. Everything's weird. We don't see her husband who's apparently a co-owner of the hotel and then at one point, we see that he's like chained to her leg on beneath the table. They, they can't see it, but her husband is there and she's like kicking him. And then later we're going to see her as like this whole Lovecraftian sort of monster in the basement. So, you know, we're just setting up that shit is really weird in Hobbs End.
1: Yeah, and Styles knows all of this. Like she, when like you said, when they get out of the car, she notices immediately that there's like a, a greenhouse that's completely vacant. And she's like oh, this was, you know, in the book, it was growing weird plants. And, and then when they go into the bed and breakfast, she's the one that's seen like the picture move first. Yeah. And of course, Sam Neill isn't. And he's just like, what the hell's going on? And, She's telling him, you know, after they check in, the innkeeper is from the book. and and Sam Neill has read some of the books. And so he's like, that's not her. Like she chops her husband up into to, you know little bits. like she's this little old lady. And then that's when, you know, the we as the viewer get the cut to the naked husband like chained to the floor or whatever, or chained to the desk. So, yeah, Styles is really starting to to spin out here. And Sam Neill is just, still uh, denying, 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 and thinks this is all a bunch of actors and a scam.
0: So they end up going to this strange church with these sort of onion spires that is on one side of the town. And that's the church that's been described in the book. There used to be like a regular catholic church there at one point and then the ground swallowed it up or something in this new evil church arose that's a real church it's in canada somewhere i think but you know it's very distinctive which is why they use it for the film as they approach this church you know there's like These creepy kids who are like chasing a dog, which Annie was really into.
1: Annie was really pleased with the amount of dogs in this film.
0: And then we see this like village mob who are going to reappear, the sort of torch wielding mob. And they go to the door of the church and they're like, Cain, Cain, come out. And then the doors open and... Jurgen Proch now is there as Sutter Kane. But
1: first, we have a little boy that's there.
0: Was that first or yeah, after? that's first.
1: So the little boy is there because the like the leader of the angry mob, which we get a couple scenes with this guy who looks very German. He's got like long hair and and anyway, he um, is freaking out because he's looking for his son, and so the doors open by themselves, and the doors have some inscriptions on them, like you know entering in here through this passage or evil or whatever, some very terrifying language on the, the church doors. And uh, the doors just keep opening and closing. And there's this like young little blonde boy there. And so the, the guy, the dad is like, son, you know, and then it's doom, 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 doom. And then We get Sutter Kane,
0: And something's happening with the little boy. Like he's, his eyes are sort of rolling back in his head. He's got some sort of powers. They don't really fully explain whatever the story of what's going on in the book in the Mouth of Madness is. We're sort of getting these glimpses of what might be going on. It's got sort of a village of the damned vibe with the kids, but then there's some sort of thing that's infecting the children i mean that guy later on at the bar kind of goes into it a little bit but we're really only getting sort of like snippets of whatever this plot is
1: i don't think there's really at the pace of this film and everything that's going on there's probably i don't even care that they don't explain it it's fine but there's probably not really time or a way to explain this it's kind of better to leave it ambiguous in this case i think because it's just like yeah he i mean he explains a little bit at the bar later saying first it started happening to the children then the adults too like he keeps telling sam neill like you should leave you should leave like he's still with it enough to know that it's bad like he still has that awareness but the kids we see later when we see them more up close one of the little girls has like some really gnarly like jagged teeth and like they, their skin's all like gross and they just look like they're deteriorating
0: well they look like they're turning into like monsters Demons or, or something, something maybe well it's like a Lovecraftian yeah. thing I think the idea is that like this town is being infected by this power, this evil, the cosmic ones, mm-hmm. the old ones, mm-hmm. all that sort of Lovecraftian thing. And that's going to spill out into the world and ultimately drive everybody insane, right? Let's talk a little bit, though, about these sort of makeup effects that we're seeing, because we, like you just described, we're seeing like these makeup effects on people and on the kids. And then later on, we're going to see some like actual sort of Lovecraftian monsters and these were done by k b who are great, like mm-hmm. Creature Design Company. And, you know, I think they do a good job. But I have to say, while I'm watching this movie, man, I wish Rob Bottin did this. Rob Bottin famously did The Thing. And the stuff that he did in that is totally Lovecraftian yeah. and, and disturbing. And as good as some of these little bits that we see here are i really wish we were seeing some really disturbing rob Botine creations
1: i agree and there is one thing that happens that was very rob bottine to me and that's later with styles yeah and that's kind of my favorite effect that happens in the film
0: it's like a contortionist or somebody like yeah. Bending backwards and they put some sort of like mask on her to make it look like her head's like upside down It's cool. Yeah But it's very reminiscent of some of the stuff that you see in The Thing. And I just feel like if it had been bumped up to that sort of level in terms of like the visual effects and the makeup and stuff, this movie would be a stone cold classic like The Thing.
1: I would agree because I think it comes close. I like what they're doing here, but... If they could have had raw it would have really put it over the edge. It
0: feels like they don't fully have total confidence in whatever the creature effects are because we really only get glimpses of them. And the glimpses that we get look cool, like they, they look well done, but we don't ever get like that moment, like in the thing that, you know, scene in the medical lab or whatever. Where you're just like, wow, like this is crazy, you know, I really wish it just had had that sort of level of uh, achievement in it.
1: Same. I mean, I'm wondering maybe because a lot of this film seems to take place during the day, too, like it's, you know, with lighting and whatnot, it's, you know, it's kind of easier to kind of get away with things better when it's darker, perhaps? It's just a thought, because I feel like a lot of this takes place during the day.
0: So at this point in the movie, really just things are just getting weirder and weirder. We're getting more sort of surreal events happening. Sam Neill tries to leave and he can't. He has sort of a fight with Styles. Styles confesses to him that, yes, this originally was a hoax like you were Mm -hmm. suggesting, but then it turned real, and it's not a hoax now, and all of that, and he's like, well, you think I'm going to play along with this? Like, fuck you, or whatever, and he tries to leave, and so then she goes to the church herself, and then she confronts Sutter Kane, and he, you know, explains to her, basically, that his books have come from some sort of cosmic source and that it's not really like he's even writing them it's like he's just putting them out into the world and it's basically just letting us know that like the books are gonna drive everybody crazy and so she's kind of com- just completely spun out at this point i mean her character just sort of loses her mind essentially
1: well i think it's because to your point she's been actively reading the books so she's going to be way more susceptible right to to anything because she has like been editing the books and um, I do want to take a moment just for Sutter Kane's writing setup in the church yeah I, I hope we get to have that for you someday but
0: I wouldn't want to have to do it on an old school typewriter because <laughs> man I make a lot of mistakes
1: but boy does it look cool I
0: honestly don't know how writers used to do that my work would be unreadable because I'm pretty bad at typing
1: i too was not the greatest of typists, and when i had to have reports done i would totally have to have my mom help me out with that because she had been a secretary and was really good
0: (laughs) so i mean at this point just weird shit is it just goes off
1: the rails at this point like the whole town this is like now you definitely have the angry mob with like torches and everything sam neill can't leave you know we hit that scene in the bar where the again the dad you know is like he has this like big gaping kind of hole in his face and he's like you know my five year old daughter did this to me and this is where he's trying to kind of give a little backstory as to what's been happening in the town and
0: then he blows his head off with a shotgun yeah because he says this is how Sutter Kane wrote it
1: yeah so we we're really getting that like Sutter Kane is is the puppeteer of, of all of this. But I mean, as we've heard from Sutter came himself, it's coming from bigger cosmic, whatever, you know, and he's just the vessel, I guess yeah, to get it out there. But I really like these ideas of like reality and, and how it's being scripted, and there's just some bigger driving weird force happening. And it's going to spread all over the world. Like, I think it's cool. Well,
0: and it's very Lovecraftian in its presentation of that this book is going to drive you insane. In Lovecraft stories, typically, it's like a song that drives somebody insane. Or there's a painting that drives somebody insane. The old woman who owns the hotel is named Mrs. Pickman. And mm-hmm. Pickman's model is a... right. Uh, H.P. Lovecraft story there's other cute little references in there too like the um, John Glover character is Dr. Dr. Saperstein, Saperstein. Yep. so that's a Rosemary's <laughs> that's Baby right. reference, but yeah, so that idea of something driving you insane, you it's so incomprehensible that your mind can't handle it, and you go crazy, like that's a favorite motif of Lovecraft, he always hits upon that thing, to the point where it's kind of a little bit monotonous, I mean you know, no offense to Lovecraft fans. (laughs) I have read some Lovecraft. hate to be that guy, but like, I'm not like the hugest fan. Um, I mean, obviously his stuff is now problematic from a 2022 perspective. He really was afraid of the swarthy races and whatnot. And he had some pretty non-progressive ideas even for the time that he was writing so there's that but it's also just um, the way pulp writers wrote back then they got paid for the word Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of words and he uses a lot of fancy words that are kind of like archaic by today's standards like gibbous moons Mm -hmm. and stuff like that it's just a little hard to read honestly but you know People love the world he's created. And I do think the world he created is pretty cool.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, other artist interpretation of what he's created, I think, translates really well. Like just, you know, inspiration that comes from his ideas.
0: Well, that's just the thing. I think it's been a tough nut for people to crack because in his books it's like this indescribable thing you know like so how
1: do you show that how
0: do you describe the indescribable how do you present that you know like if it's so insane that your mind can't comprehend it it's like well you can make a rubber thing with some tentacles and <laughs> that can pass i guess as the thing that will drive you insane if you look at it but Will it really drive you insane? Nah, I actually kind of think Cthulhu is cool looking. Cthulhu
1: does look really cool.
0: I don't know how insane it'll make you.
1: It just depends on what drives you insane, I guess. Maybe tentacles drive some people to the brink of madness.
0: Well, for me, it's sitting in traffic. So if uh, somebody can bottle that and make it into something terrifying, then that would drive me insane.
1: There you go. So yeah, at this point um styles has gone off the rails when she goes to see setter Kane, she ends up like making out with him and then we get like the back shot of him which is totally lovecraftian with like this body horror creature thing on his back of his head which she's like totally caressing yeah so she's she's on board we've lost her sam neil again trying to to leave she won't let him have the keys she comes back to the hotel and and tries to kind of make out with him too but then ends up like throwing him through the hotel door they're like struggling with the keys in the car something he's trying to leave and she then swallows the keys which i actually was reading in the trivia that um the keys were made out of pasta oh nice which is pretty cool but yeah then we you know we get to um when they're, they're like on this road, which they can't leave, they just keep coming back and keep coming back to Hobbs. And yeah, it just doesn't seem like they're going to be able to get out of there. And she's just like, you know, laughing crazily. And things are getting really weird.
0: Yeah, I don't remember exactly the chain of events at this point, because there's just so much crazy shit yeah. that happens. But they do end up back in the church. At one point, Sam Neill is in like this a confessional. confessional booth mm-hmm. and he has a scene with uh, Sutter Kane, mm-hmm. where Sutter Kane, you know, talks more about the cosmic horror that's going to be unleashed. I think that's the point in which he mentions the old ones, and the old ones are specifically H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraft Cthulhu mythos thing. And then they have that scene where Sutter Kane basically is like, "I'm out of here," or whatever. Yeah. And he turns into a piece of paper or yep. something and tears himself apart, and we see the pages <laughs> of the paper. And then all of a sudden there's like this weird sci-fi hallway there. Yep. It's a little odd because you can totally tell like that's one set and then we're cutting between that and then Jurgen now in the, the cathedral or whatever. And it's like it doesn't really match. It just seems like an idea they had. And they're like, well, let's just do it like this.
1: And this is like really like the the one time where it kind of I mean, not that it fully like takes me out of the movie because it's not that big of a deal, but it's just like this particular effect and the way it plays out is just it feels very 90s. It
0: totally feels very 90s. In fact that hallway looks like a hallway that we're going to see a few years later in Event Horizon with (laughs) Sam Neill. (laughs) They somehow envisioned the future and saw that hallway but yeah it's very 90s and it definitely kind of shows the limitations of what they could kind of do there and it does feel like at this point it's just a lot of throwing things at the screen like I feel like the movie kind of gets messy here.
1: It does. It it gets messy definitely for a minute here, especially because I just watched this and I can't really remember all the weirdness that happens until he like comes to and it's the next day and he's back on the road. Yeah. And I, I can't tell you how he gets there. And I've seen this movie many times. I saw this movie... Not in the theater, but as soon as it was available for rent, yeah, I, I got it. The
0: way he gets there is he's being chased down the hallway yeah. by the monsters. Yeah, this was apparently called like the Wall of Monsters. Like Can B made all these different like Lovecraftian creatures, and it's very like. Reminiscent of the first Hellraiser mm-hmm. when there's like this hallway and there's this like monster that's clearly like a monster that's just on like wheels yeah. that's being wheeled down the hallway chasing them or whatever. It kind of reminds me of that. So it's not 100% working. Yeah. It's certainly not driving me insane with fear. But it's, you know, if you love creature effects and stuff, it's cool. And basically he just gets chased to the end of this hallway and then it's like on wakes the road. Wakes up during
1: the day on the road. Yes. Yeah. It was just, I mean, it's just a lot that happens there. so and he's been
0: given the manuscript, mm-hmm. the finished manuscript right. to bring back to the publisher.
1: Yeah. That was like, that was given to him by Sutter Kane That's like his whole mission and that he had written it that way. And so
0: when Sam Neil wakes up on this sort of crossroads like area, he is... Uh, met there by a little boy who is a paper boy and that little boy is a young Hayden Christensen the future Anakin Skywalker you know it's just a scene where he asks where he is and he's like where's Hobbs End and the kid's like there is no Hobbs End and there's even like a pointless scene where like Sam Neill goes to
1: the (laughs) like Hall of Records of the library or something like that yeah like yeah well First of all, I think we're supposed to think for a minute that this kid could be part of the Hobson scene because he's got like those little playing cards and his bike too. Sam Neill a little wary too. And he's just, you know, okay, well, where's the highway? And the kid's like that way, you know, and, and it becomes clear that that's not what's happening here. But then we get Sam Neill... On a bus, yes. Some good Sam Neill here with um, having you know nightmares or just you know more weird freakouts with with Sutter Kane and Sutter Kane. You know, basically saying he's God and he really likes the color blue. And then all of a sudden, Sam Neill wakes up and everything on the bus is blue. And yeah. And then he's like screaming, and then he comes out of that again, and then it's like normal, but he's just having a bad dream, and you know, just a, a, we're getting a lot of good like Sam Neill freakouts, which is which is really delightful. But yes, to your point, he uh, all of a sudden goes into it's like the library or records department or something of some place in New Hampshire, and we just get the the clerk. Very adamantly saying, "Sir, there never has been, or is there, a Hobbs End?" And he's like, "I want to see. Speak to your supervisor." This
0: whole sort of section of the movie is kind of a little silly to me in general. I do agree that there is some fun Sam Neil moments here, but in terms of like the plot and the script, it kind of makes no sense because he's just gone through all of this craziness does he really still think that he's been punked at this point
1: i mean it would be the biggest punk of all time but yeah i mean i i guess we're just supposed to think you know with this character that he is just that much of a non-believer i guess that he just still even after going through all of this like still wants to get some proof Yeah. He wants the receipts. Well,
0: they also want to show that I guess he's losing his mind. Yeah. But it's just kind of a little clunky and sloppy. Like it doesn't seem to completely hold together. He ends up going back to uh, the publisher Mm -hmm. as played by Charlton Heston, explains to him You know, he's like, and and I don't have the book or whatever. And the publisher's like, you delivered the book to us seven months ago. Yeah. And there's going to be a movie coming out. Because Sam Neill's like, you can't publish that book. And they're like, we already did. We published it seven months ago when you delivered it. Are we to then presume that Sam Neill has been dealing with this for like seven months
1: yeah i mean i think we're to presume that time is all fucked up now also charlton heston says to him like i don't know who this person styles is that you said that i sent off with you i sent you off by yourself my take on this is Sam Neill was also reading the books because he was trying to get a handle on what's going on. Yeah. So I think in some way, even though he hadn't read as much as Styles had or the world in general, he had read enough to be involved in in this and not... In reality I guess like that's the only thing I can make sense of that
0: maybe he's been crazy now for all this time yes
1: but he wasn't as crazy as he is and we're gonna cut to next like him looking like he's a hobo well
0: and I would like to point out again the way you mentioned that John Carpenter films tend to have this weird prescience one of the big themes here is what is real and it's like whatever you want to believe is real and we're really living in a time yep. where people make their own realities and they decide what their realities are going to be. Fake
1: news and all of that. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I feel
0: like that theme is very heavily in here. Maybe
1: John Carpenter is Sutter Kane.
0: <laughs> I think John Carpenter just is the kind of person that responds to material that is sort of forward thinking and i think he just has sort of an intuition in that absolutely i don't think it's conscious on his part i think he just sort of gravitate towards that sort of thing he's
1: always so ahead of the curve you go back and revisit his films and you're like this was there
0: yeah so as you've mentioned now uh john trent sam neill is basically like a crazy hobo and he is just wandering around the streets. Um, We should mention, you know, there's been this sort of recurring thing that's been happening before near his house where he goes by this alleyway, Mm -hmm. and there's some posters for Sutter Kane up near the alleyway. And then in the alleyway, there's like this cop that's beating on these like kids Kids or
1: homeless people and stuff too. And like the cop like at first he looks human the first time we see him yeah the next time he sees him like his face is doing that whole like metamorphosis into the Lovecraft monster right. type you know it's like really just dis- distorted and kind of rotting but he says the same line every time you want this is like you want some too buddy yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have been sort of seeing that his like mental state yeah. has perhaps been cracking already before all this whole trip took place.
1: As soon as he's... Yeah, I mean, we if you go back, it, we could trace it to as soon as he starts reading the books. Yeah. Really. Or maybe it's even, you know, just kind of talking about him or something because not to nitpick things, but he doesn't start reading the books until he goes to the office and he does meet... Charlton Heston and Stiles there but maybe just having an awareness or I don't know maybe just the inundation of the posters and just everybody reading about it or getting attacked we failed to mention this but the person that attacks him and Bernie Casey in the beginning is Sutter Kane's agent that's right yeah. and he just looks like some deranged man but we find out when he goes to meet with the publisher and and his editor for Sutter Kane that's like, no, that was his agent who had read the majority of the manuscript. I, I don't know, maybe just being in the ether of it, it's making you a little crazy. But I don't know, Charlton Heston is like, I don't read that stuff.
0: I think you've rationalized it <laughs> good. I think <laughs> that it's just kind of a sloppy script in a way. It's not airtight by any stretch of the imagination. No,
1: and, and I would say that is a complete... In total accurate assessment of, of this script is like, I think there's a lot of good ideas here. Yeah. I like just the overall theme of it, but yeah, it's like, it's not airtight at all. And I think that the writer is a much better producer.
0: I wouldn't necessarily lay the blame on the script because it probably changed a True. lot during the shooting of the movie and they probably did different things because they couldn't afford this or that. But I do feel like it has that kind of late, period john carpenter quality where things just kind of get a little bit loosey-goosey as it goes on i mean i feel that's true of big trouble in little china and i feel it's true of prince of darkness and i feel that that it's true they live all good movies but they tend to have this quality where you feel like it's kind of just being held together by duct tape. I think that's accurate. But so how it ends up is he's wandering the streets and he goes in front of this storefront that's like being looted by crazed Sutter Kane fans or whatever and he sees some fan and he hits him with an axe.
1: Well the fan comes out and the fans are like bleeding from the nose and stuff too from reading the books yeah. and yeah, and he says something like, "Did you like the book?" or something like that. And the the fans like, "Yes." And then he just like hits him with an axe like what happens at the beginning. So,
0: the way the movie wraps up, we go back to the insane asylum and David Warner and they finish their interview. And then David Warner leaves and the world's just gone completely crazy and uh It's so crazy that Sam Neill can just sort of walk out and um, he walks into a movie theater and watches In the Mouth of Madness as directed by John Carpenter. So meta. So meta, yes. And he sits down with his popcorn and he eats it and we see scenes from the movie we've just watched and he just starts laughing.
1: (laughs) I love this part. I love him just like, cracking up watching this eating popcorn in his uh, sanitarium gear is yeah. like his comfy pajamas or whatever he just dis- that he's done all his crosses on
0: he at least has wiped the crosses also off of his, his face, face at yes this point.
1: yeah yeah his face is clean but he's still got his outfit but it doesn't matter I mean like that's kind of what one of the characters says to him in the beginning I can't remember who it was if he was if he was already in the asylum or what but remember they were like you know how was it david warner that's saying to him like if you know how or maybe it's styles but one of them is like if the world i think it was styles if the world has gone insane and that's the like what the majority is doing and you're sane, like now you're the insane one
0: right i feel like i'm the insane person now because i feel like the world is so insane and that my sanity makes me the outlier.
1: I can relate to that as well.
0: So yeah, that's the end of the movie. We get the and song again over the credits. Now, this movie cost, they think, somewhere around $10 million. And it only made $8 million worldwide. So that's pretty bad. And this was sort of like really the beginning of the end for John Carpenter in a way. I mean, he'd had movies that had sort of failed before, but this really sort of Took him out of the game for the 90s. I mean, he had a couple of things as we've talked about, mm-hmm. like Village of the Damned and vampires and stuff, but they were like B-movie type releases. He wasn't really a big marquee name before. And it's like, you know, before his name would be mm-hmm. over the movie. I think that still happened even through till the end.
1: Well, I think that's the way he does things.
0: Anyway, it feels like this was kind of like the beginning of the end of him being an A-lister director. So, Jennifer, why do you think this movie failed?
1: I honestly do not recall any advertising for this film. And I was definitely going to see these type of movies at the time. Like I said, I remember renting this as soon as it came out. I don't even know why I I knew of it. Probably just because it was John Carpenter or something like that. But how would you market such a thing? Yeah, it's horror, but it's really weird horror. It's not a slasher. It's not a ghost story. It's like dealing with some kind of, in a way, like heady concepts.
0: For sure. I
1: I just don't know how this would have ever been something that the mainstream, much less our mainstream horror fans, were going to go see in the theater.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think in a way this movie was kind of the canary in the coal mine for Lovecraftian horror movies in the cinema. Very famously, back in the 2000s, Guillermo del Toro wanted to make In the Mountains of Madness, which is a famous H.P. Lovecraft story the title was inspired from. It's different than this it's kind of more like the thing there's like a it's in, takes place in the antarctic but he had this vision for a lovecraft movie and he could never get the money for it because he wanted like i don't know like almost 100 million dollars to realize it and it's just like the lovecraft just doesn't really bring in big crowds like it's not something that you can sell easily to the public which you know speaking to your point because how do you market it you know it's not easily digestible like it's this conceptual thing i remember the posters for this were really like nondescript it just like had like a face that was kind of like melting Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it didn't really give you any real idea of what kind of movie it was and yeah, I mean, I don't even remember it coming out. I think I just remember vaguely seeing posters or whatever. I don't even remember when I finally got around to watching it for the first time. I can't even tell you. It might have been DVD at that point.
1: Again, someone who was actively the audience for for this as far as horror viewers go. The right age and everything going to horror movies. I I don't have any recollection of this coming out in the theater.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it was marketing, but I also just think there's just no way to sell this to an audience. I don't think it has anything to do with the quality of the film. I mean, the film didn't get great reviews either, but, you know, John Carpenter movies generally weren't getting great reviews at that point. I mean, The Thing didn't even get good reviews, and that's a masterpiece.
1: Yeah, I think with this... So, you know, it's like, yeah, The Thing didn't get great reviews, but I mean, it's beloved now. I think that's true of a lot of his films. I mean, aside from, of course, Halloween, you know, that was a hit out the gate. But I think there's a lot of love for this film now, close to 30 years later or whatever.
0: Oh, yeah, it's definitely gained sort of a cult status in that time. I find myself revisiting it more and more frequently. I didn't love it right out of the gate when I eventually got around to seeing it, but I keep coming back to it. It's like one of those movies that has this strange allure to me where I'm like, I feel like watching In the Mouth of Madness. And it's not like I sit there actively like liking the movie but I just feel like I want to watch it every now and then I don't know I think it's got a strange sort of Lovecraftian power there's just something about the movie that is just oddly compelling you can't really put your finger on what it is it's got a tone that I think is good horror but it's also got sort of a wit and comedy about it
1: Definitely. I mean, I think that's just John Carpenter. Even in the darkest or kind of most messed up stuff that he is doing, there's always some humor there.
0: It's a good movie. And if you haven't seen it, you should, especially if you like conceptual horror. And it's also not terribly gory or no. gruesome or mean-spirited or, you know, it's not torture-porny. So.
1: No, not at all. It's uh, just really weird in a good way.
0: Well, I'm going to go take an axe to a diner window, summon the old ones, and go read some Sutter Cain. Do you read
1: Sebby Bendix?
0: <laughs> that about does it today for Pole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoltrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for
1: listening, and we'll see you real soon.